Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. Welcome, everybody, to the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you again for joining us today. And I've got a very special treat for you today. I've got a dear friend of mine. He is the host of the Sports Spectrum podcast, and you can find that on all podcast mediums. And he is the author of the book, Live to Forgive. And his new book, The Uniform of Leadership, will be coming out in just a couple of months from now in June. So by the time you hear this podcast, Jason's book will be just about ready to come out. And it's my privilege to welcome former ESPN producer, the host of the Sports Spectrum podcast, author, speaker, Jason Romano to the Intentional Encourager podcast. Jason, how are you today? I'm doing well, Brian. How are you, buddy? Man, I'm doing well. I am so honored and and pleased that, that we could make this happen. Thank you for coming on the podcast with us. Jason, you've got an interesting story, and this is what this podcast is all about, telling inspiring stories, for, you know, and inspiring people through inspiration. It's, our tagline is inspiring stories from inspirational people, and you're one of those people in my life that has inspired me and, and helped me along. Looking back, you, you have always been a sports nut. That's what kind of gravitated you and I together. Talk about your early childhood and when you first had a falling in love so to speak with sports yeah I mean it really started when I was probably coming out of the womb I'm guessing but my my dad and my grandfather um, are easily the two biggest influences in my life when it comes to sports Uh, when I remember being five six years old and always being outside playing but even more watching and discovering you know, football on television and becoming a Dallas Cowboys fan and discovering baseball and, and Daryl Strawberry and becoming a New York Mets fan and um, the same with the Celtics and, and the NBA and becoming a basketball fan. I remember all these memories from the early 80s, late 70s when I started watching games with my dad and my grandfather. And it's still one of my treasured memories of watching sports is always just going to my grandfather's house on a Saturday night and turning on the Mets game and my grandfather didn't love the Mets. He wasn't really a Yankees fan either, but locally that was the channels that we had. Mm-hmm. And so he would watch the Yankees and I'd come in and I'd say, Pa, come on, let's put the Mets on. Okay, Jace, go ahead. So we put on the Mets <laughs> game and we watched the Mets. And, and that's really where, you know, the sports fandom took shape was when I was probably between the ages of seven and 10 years old. Your career ultimately took you into radio. When, when do you remember, you, you talk about watching games with your granddad and, mm-hmm. and your dad, but you ultimately ended up in radio. Can you remember the first time that you heard a baseball game or a football game on the radio and it really clicked with you like, man, this is so cool? Because I remember that with my dad. I remember listening to the now retired voice of the Reds, Marty Brenneman, he and, and longtime Reds partner Joe Nuxall. Uh, who passed away several years ago. And people remember Joe Nuxall as being the youngest Major League Baseball player to ever appear in a game. Nuxall was 15 years old. And I remember yeah. listening to Marty and Joe in the car with my dad or on the, on the radio in, 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 in the bedroom. My dad had a little alarm clock. Do you remember the first time that you heard something on the radio and it just captured your imagination? Because that's where your career took you. Yeah, it did. I I don't remember an exact moment, but I will tell you, I remember being a kid 
and you know we would see my dad on the weekends and i would go over to his house and i'd ask my my stepmom patty i said where's where's dad and she would say he's out in the car in the backyard and i'm like well, what's he doing back there and she says he's listening to the game and i said the game and so i went back with him and i would go into and i haven't i don't think i've ever told this story i i would go back in out to the backyard and go into the car and be like dad what are you doing and you, you know, back in the, even in the eighties, you just turned your car over a little bit and the radio came on just like yeah. you would if you were going to a drive-in theater. And because KMOX was a 50,000 watt, you know, AM talk station, even in small town, New York state, we could pick up KMOX and my dad in his, in, in the grainy sort of way on the radio would listen to Jack Buck and the Cardinals mm -hmm. at night. Uh, and this is a guy at that time, he's probably 34. 30, 30, 30 to 35 years old. This isn't a little kid. Yeah. Uh, that's how much my dad's, my dad loved and continues to love sports, but that's how passionate he was. And there was no, you know, MLB package. There was no satellite radio in the eighties. It was literally a grainy radio station, KMOX coming through the car radio of his old Ford Tempo in 1983 or four. And that's how my dad would listen to, to games. And I remember thinking, this is pretty cool that you can, you know, that some, someday you could do this for a living. And I think it yeah. wasn't even until I got to college that I realized I wanted to do radio, at least initially. Um, when I was in high school, I wanted to do sports broadcasting, but I didn't, didn't really care what that meant. I, Howard Cosell was the guy that I looked at uh, and said, I want to be the greatest sports broadcaster ever like Howard Cosell. And that, so mm -hmm. in my mind as a 15-year-old kid in the 80s, that's kind of where my, my brain was thinking. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned KMOX. We had a similar situation with WLW out of Cincinnati where you could – and I've heard uh, a guy that you worked with at ESPN a while back, Jeff Brantley, who's been a longtime broadcaster on Reds baseball, talking about growing up in Alabama, listening to Cincinnati Reds games just like your dad in upstate New York, listening to Cardinal games. And, by the way, my family and I had a Ford Tempo – that's about the only thing it was good for was a radio because everything else didn't work in it about half the time. I just remember it was a light blue car and it was, it was a newer car that he had gotten at the time and it was a big deal and he was a big Ford guy. So I, yeah. don't know. I have no idea if it worked well or not because I was a kid, but I can tell you that he would, he would go out there and listen to games in the car yeah. for a couple hours. I mean, yeah. most people would look at that as, man, that's weird and strange and, and it probably is to most people, but for me, it was just a guy who had a passion for his team and, and wanted to get as much as he could out of it. You know, Jason, we talk about in, in our society, we talk about voices and, and you know, you, you for a long time did social media at, at ESPN and, and voices that stick out. Now there's Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman who are on first take and sure. guys you know very well, Mike Greenberg and Mike Golick who were on for – uh, what's what felt like an eternity with Mike and Mike and now Golik's gone on to, to do Golik and Wingo, but they're voices that stick in your mind. Do you think to some degree that sports has lost some of its voices because of how transient fans are and just, you mentioned the MLB package and you've got NBA TV and you've got NFL Sunday ticket. Do fans miss the opportunity can, to connect with a voice that represents their fan base? Yes, uh, for certain sports, I would say. For football, um, we're all watching it on TV. There aren't many people, I don't think, that listen to football games on the radio, especially when I say football, I mean the NFL. 
I, I think there's still a voice of the Cowboys and a voice of the you know Bengals and a voice of the Giants that that exists. And sometimes they'll work those radio broadcasts into highlights, yeah. especially through NFL films. But you know, I'm not tuning in on the radio to listen to a football game pretty much ever. Even when I was a kid, I didn't, you know, I wouldn't have been able to tell you who the voice of the, of the Cowboys was as a 10 year old kid in the eighties for basketball. You know, I think there, it was about radio. I remember my dad would do the same thing for Celtic games and Johnny most is the famous yeah. Boston Celtics radio voice. He's been long, long gone now dead for a long time, but in the eighties and the seventies, even going back to the sixties, he was the voice of the Celtics. Yeah. So you associated Johnny most with the Celtics. You associated Chick Hearn with the Lakers. You know, for baseball, I think the most uh, – basketball, I could see it too, somewhat identifying a voice to the team. You know, Sean Grandy is the Celtics play-by-play -play voice, and I, had, I love his calls of the Celtic games that I listen to sometimes when I'm on the road driving or whatever. But baseball, to me, still is a sport – that fans identify with from a voice perspective. It may be a TV voice more than a radio voice. Mm -hmm. I think of the Mets again, and Gary Cohen is the voice of the yes. Mets on, on us and why. He is awesome, and I love listening to him, uh, and I'll tune into Mets games just as much to listen to what Gary has to say and Keith and Ron, Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling, mm -hmm. as I am watching the game. So there's still a connection with the broadcasters. You know, the radio voice is a little different, I think, Baseball can still be consumed on the radio quite a bit, and I think that's probably the one sport left. You know, it's more of a regional sport than a yep. national sport. So your home base teams identify with who calls those games, whereas football is such a national sport. Basketball certainly is more of a national sport, even though it's regionally based. Mm -hmm. Baseball, though, to me, is the sport where I think that's still alive, and I hope it never goes away because I think there is such a unique way. I mean, even my daughter, who's 15, watches – the Mets games with me when they're on and we're both missing the Mets games right now and hope mm -hmm. they come back soon, but we'll watch the games. And once Alonzo, you know, takes a shot to deep left center field, she even goes into it's out of here, which is the, <laughs> That's the signature great. call of Gary Cohen. Yeah. This the, one uh, belongs to the Brit. This one, this one belongs to the Reds, Marty Brenneman. Exactly. Yeah. The books, you know, is another Mets call. Yep. You know, when you hear that, even my daughter at 15, she may not know their names and may not care as much, but she knows that line and knows that call. And so there's still, I think, a way that baseball, especially from a broadcasting perspective, still connects with those local fans. And Jason, baseball has done a great job over the years of honoring those voices more so than, than – and basketball does a good job with, with putting those voices into the, the Basketball Hall of Fame – but baseball does, I think, the best job of honoring those regional voices, those, those legendary voices. You shared a video last week, and I'm so glad that you did, about Ben Scully. And to me, when you start with greatest baseball voices of all time, you start with Vin Scully, and then you work your way down. And Vin Scully was a, a guy that did games for – can you imagine being on air for what, 62 or 64 years calling yeah. games? That's just insane. And continuing, Vin Scully was just as good when he started as the day he quit when he was, what, 88, 89 years old. That's, that's phenomenal. He's an it, American treasure. He really yeah. is. And I, I remember Vin Scully in the 80s. I See, do he too. Was, he was the Dodgers' voice forever. But 
because we couldn't get channels in Los Angeles and certainly watch any games or, or listen to any games from the Dodgers, I watched him as a the NBC game of the week mm -hmm. on NBC, and he would do all the games with Joe Garagiola, yep. and he would do World Series games for years. I mean, if you go look at the World Series from, I think, maybe 84 to 88, that was Vince Scully on the call, or 89, it was Vince Scully on the call with Joe Garagiola. Mm -hmm. And while, anytime I watch a New York Mets highlight yeah. in the 86 World Series, it's Vince Scully on the call. Um, and I actually was recently going back to 1981. I was watching... The, uh, the Dallas Cowboys, San Francisco 49ers uh, game, the catch. And if you watch NFL films and you listen to the highlights, it's usually the radio voices. But if you watch the actual game, and it's on YouTube, you can watch yep. it. Vin Scully is the voice for CBS Sports in that game. Yep. And it's fascinating. to. Re I don't re really remember that. But now that I go back, I'm like, yeah, that's right. It wasn't just Pat Summerall and John Madden. Vin Scully was a voice on CBS for football and called that for many years. So he is – truly a legend from a baseball perspective and, and probably the number one voice uh, when you think about baseball all time, along with some of the great legends in other areas and sports, you know, but he was a multifaceted guy who could yeah. do football as well and who could do national games and then go right back to local games. And he's a treasure. He really is. I'm so glad he's still alive. And I yes. hope we get a book. Somebody said this. I wish Vin Scully would write his autobiography and we're running out of time here, Vin, and there is no autobiography. And I think if anyone would have stories that we would all read and relate to going back to the 40s all the way to now, it's Vin Scully. So, Wouldn't you think, though, that book would have to be as, as long as War and Peace? That would easily have to be a thousand-pager. Listen, I'm showing you because we're taping this on Zoom. Yeah. This is my Bible. Yes. This Bible is thick. This Bible has, uh, I don't know how many, 2,100 pages, and I'm reading this. I'll yep. read Vin Scully's book, even if it is. Absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely, man. I've got my Bible close by, too. Hey, before we transition away from, from that, I've got to ask you this, because you were in the industry a long time and still are very connected to people inside the broadcasting industry. Could you imagine a day where you would see a color analyst make $17 million a year? Tony Romo just signed an extension with CBS yeah. to be their lead color analyst alongside Jim Nance for all their NFL games. And they do a – he and Nance do a great job. I think if you take a guy that has really had a meteoric rise in broadcasting, it's been Tony Romo. But And, sure. you, and you watched him, obviously, as the Cowboys quarterback for a lot of years. But did you ever think you'd see a day, Jason, where a color analyst made $17 million a year? Not really, but I will say, I, I mean, I, I, I would hear numbers and I have no idea what people at ESPN made from me asking them. That was, you know, you don't, you don't talk to people about what they make, but that stuff gets reported in the media, you know, yep. on Sports Illustrated or other places, what guys are making. And when I left, I saw some guys at ESPN that were making 10 million a year. Uh, five to six million was, you know, kind of the range for their the upper echelon of people making you know, on ESPN a year. And those were, some of them were color analysts. Some of them were, um, you know, talking heads and, and others. But so to hear 10 million, it, it doesn't surprise me that 17 million is there just because, you know, you want somebody supply and demand, you go get him, you pay him, you know, more money than he's probably quote unquote worth. But yeah, I mean, that's a lot of money. And, yep. you know, but if you're really good at something and there's a demand for you, it's kind of like a sport, you know, it was very much like, you know, a, being a player, 
you know, we, and, and I think it maybe becomes more relatable when you become a broadcaster, but if you and I had something to offer that not many people could offer yep, and right. we were available, let's just say, or a free agent, well, it becomes a bidding war and you look for the best spot. And Tony probably wanted to do CBS because as much as ESPN wanted him, my guess is ESPN would be asking Tony to do a lot more than just a game on Monday night mm -hmm. because there's other obligations. There's a million other shows Whereas CBS, it's just a game on Sunday, and that's it. And Thursday sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's it. They don't have – I mean, they do have a CBS sports network, but they're not – you know, people aren't watching it. I hate to say that. I'm not trying to, to – Well, the to, demands on his time, to your point, the, the demands on exactly. his time were, would be would – So be he gets hard. more money, and he gets to spend more time with his wife, more time with his kids, and it's a win-win, I think, for Tony. And listen, that's not his fault. I always – I never blame the athlete or the person that gets paid a lot of money. If you want to yell at someone or, or criticize them, criticize the people that are, are paying him yeah, and studying right. this market. Um, you know, criticize the, the front office of your favorite team. Don't criticize the player from your favorite yeah. team. Well, and, and again, too, you know, you, you look at it in sales. Companies recruit salespeople away from other companies because they bring their customers with them a lot of times if they don't have a non-compete. Sure. You know, businesses are always competing for customers. And, and, and the media business is no different because those people that you mentioned have built audiences that will follow them to whatever platform that they, they choose to be in. I, I got to ask you, and, and we will we'll transition over to your time at ESPN. That's a good place to segue. Um, when you left there, you worked with two guys that are icons in this business, Mike Greenberg and Mike Golick. We mentioned them uh, a few minutes ago. Do you think we'll ever see, because I, I, I like you, Jay, I, I am, and a lot of people listening to this will probably agree with me, the greatest on-air radio tandem, I think even better than Mike and the Mad Dog, the greatest on-air broadcasting tandem in the history of, of the medium. Um, I don't think we'll ever see anything like it. And I, in these times that we're in right now, I miss the two of them together, Mike Greenberg and Mike Golick. They just had something special. Talk about your time on Mike and Mike, if you would, because I know you spent time early on that show, and then you spent time at the end of your tenure at ESPN. Talk a little bit about that. You bring a, a unique perspective, I think, that a lot of people don't have out there, seeing these guys up close and personal. Well, the one thing I would say is um, when I first got to ESPN almost 20 years ago now, which is crazy, uh, it was day two, I think, when I got there that the opportunity to go work on Mike and Mike came. And at the time, I honestly didn't really know Mike and Mike from a radio show. I knew Mike Golick because he was on the Eagles and I'm a Cowboys fan. So yep. I remember Golick. Greeny, I really didn't know or, or, or have any kind of inkling on who he was other than occasionally at the time. You know, before that, he was an ESPN news anchor. So you would see him doing, you know, Sports Center or ESPN news updates. And he continued to do TV and radio for many years. Um, so I wasn't, and forgive me for saying this, it doesn't, it's going to come across as, as maybe arrogant, but that's not where I'm trying to say. I wasn't impressed with them. I was just, I was impressed with working at ESPN. I was still a kid. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But they weren't as big as they ended up becoming. Uh, so early on, I mean, it was three of us. It was me, a guy named Justin Craig, who's now one of the radio head honchos, uh, a guy named Pete Genesini, who oversees all the podcasts now at ESPN, and uh, one other person, Kirk Kaplan, I think was his name. And 
that was it. There was three people and then me, I was the fourth and I was the booker for the show. So I was booking guests and that was it. It was a radio show in a tiny room, probably about the size of the room I'm in now, which is just my, my home office in my spare bedroom. Mm -hmm. And that's it. So it was much different in 2000 and 2001 than it was when I came back in 2016. In 2016, that show, and I, I had been involved in that show through the years as a talent booker. I would book guests. I'd bring guys through Mike and Mike. So I was fully aware of what was happening and how they were growing. Uh, when they first went on to television, probably four or five years later on ESPN News, and it really became a popular show to watch as much as it was to listen and growing and growing and then to ESPN2 and then um, just watching those guys become who they became and, and it was so popular. To go back in 2016, you know, I remember when, when my boss at the time, I was working on the NFL in the 2015 season, came to me and he said, hey, I might have an opportunity for you. Uh, what do you think of the idea of going back and working on Mike and Mike? And I knew from a, from a it's weird to say this, from a, from a job growth perspective, this is going to sound maybe weird, but it wasn't growth for me as far as moving up to the next level, right? Mm -hmm. So I wasn't getting a promotion per se in my job title. But I knew working for Mike and Mike, how those guys were when I worked for them years ago and how they developed a family type atmosphere on their show just by talking to people who worked on the show. And I had known a few of them that I said yes because of the opportunity to be on with Mike and Mike more than the opportunity to kind of grow up the ladder of ESPN. And interestingly enough, it was during that time that I was feeling like the Lord was calling me away to ESPN as well. So it was a real weird dynamic. But working on Mike and Mike my last year was incredible. It was one of the best years, if not the best year, of my 17 years there at ESPN. Um, for a variety of reasons, you know, I was able to have fun again in the work that I was doing, not that I wasn't having fun before, but this was truly every day having fun, even if we were covering sports and often seriously covering sports, but Golick and Greeny were the best. And you got to kind of see two seasoned guys who were at the top of their games, who were as good as anybody was around in radio, just be who they were. And so I was really taking that time. I didn't know that I'd be leaving and going and do a podcast and a radio show and being a broadcaster myself at that time. But I knew God was calling me to transition at some point somewhere. So I really took that last year to watch, to learn, to listen, to network, to make friends with people outside of the business and connect with people. But to, for, for lack of a better word, to use the, the fact that I was working on Mike and Mike to maybe open up a couple doors to talk to different people, not to necessarily look for jobs yeah. and take advantage of it that way, but just to use the opportunity to say, hey, I work on this show called Mike and Mike. Can I get five minutes of your time to talk to you and listen and learn from you? And that 2016 year was the, that was the pivot. That was the mode. That was coming out at halftime and changing the game plan a little bit in a football yeah. game and, and readjusting and then going Full steam, full steam ahead, coming out in the third quarter. Like that's what Mike and Mike was for me. Is was really the moment where, in 2016, I was allowed to, okay, come out of halftime, get going, let's get this thing rolling, and then boom, 2017 happened, and I left ESPN, and then the doors 
the floodgates opened on opportunities for me to just do things I never could have imagined. They were intentional, Jason, wouldn't you say? Because I heard you talking about that. It seemed those two guys, Mike Greenberg and Mike Golick, were intentional, one, about connecting with the people that they work with, sure. and two, building a culture that made it enjoyable to come to work. Now, as we're in the midst of, of, of unusual times in our country, how important is it, again, to you, when you look back at those times and you look at the culture, how important is it to translate what those guys did intentionally to what businesses and, and churches and, and leaders can do to intentionally create a culture like you came from when Mike and Mike when you left ESPN? I worked there 17 years. It was, it's, you don't see that in every place at ESPN, the culture that Mike and Mike built. Um, there is definitely a culture that ESPN has built that has sustained them and that continues to sustain them. And it's a good culture. It really is. But there are flaws inside that because there are a lot of humans in there and we're all flawed humans. Yeah. But Mike and Mike built a culture of togetherness. Uh, they, one thing they always did, if you listen to the show, like you did Brian faithfully, you know, they, they involved their staff and yeah. they had guys like Stanzik and, you know, guys like, you know, Patriot Ray and even myself and, and, and Hembo, who's still doing his thing on get up. Uh, those guys, those are all names that if you listen to the show, you know them. Why? Because Mike and Mike involved the people who worked on the show. No other show at ESPN did that. A couple of the radio shows did, but the TV people, you don't ever acknowledge producers when you do TV. Uh, and most shows that I worked on, the NFL and others, very rarely did they acknowledge producers. And I don't know why that was the case, thinking out loud here, but they didn't. And, but radio, there's an intimacy about it. And there was a way that Mike and Mike recognized and allowed those guys to shine. They allowed their, the producers and the other people on the show, even if they weren't honed, you know, broadcasters with the best booming voice, they allowed them to shine on their show. And yet by allowing others to shine, Mike and Mike shine. And that's a great leadership lesson for businesses and for churches, nonprofits, whoever. And this is going to be in my book, partially in my new book is the greatest leaders are servants and help mm -hmm. and serve others and have others in mind. Now, listen, Mike and Mike had themselves in mind too, and they're out for themselves, certainly just like we all are on some level but they were great because they made others shine and be great. And that's what I've tried to do and learn. That's the greatest lesson I ever learned at ESPN was just like Jesus said in the Bible, I did not come to be served, but to right. serve. Right. And that, that is the key to leadership, serving, being a servant, making others shine, putting others at the forefront, you know, taking the second or third, um, you know, uh, in line so somebody else can go first in line. It's, it's simple, simple, uh, uh, simple concept, but at the same time, it's so difficult because we're, by nature, we're selfish people. Yeah. Uh, but Mike and Mike were great at that, and that trans transfers over to any business or, or organization. Well, and, and I'll say this, and we'll move away from that, but, but I'll say this and kind of wrapping this up, Jason, is that what translated through the screen to the audience was, two guys having a conversation. You're right, they involved their staff. But the audience was always a part of the conversation. They Definitely. always involved. Instead of talking to, they talked with. And Correct. that's what people felt 
that as though they knew them. And, and I still see Greeny and Golick when they do interviews, they're very conversational. I love watching Mike Greenberg do an interview because people will call him Greeny and it's two guys talking, or if he's talking to Doris Burke or he's talking to whomever, he's just, he, he seems like he's a very human kind of guy would talk. Like if, if we, if we, uh, pinged him in on zoom of course he's doing a show right now but if we pinged him in it would be the three of us talking and and I think that's the beautiful part of how we need to have conversations going forward is including other people in our conversations instead of talking to them talking with them yep I would agree I think that that Mike and Mike both do a fantastic job of 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 talking with instead of just at the audience and there's a it's a neat it's a unique gift because a lot of times you feel like some of the guys that you listen to tv or radio that they're talking at you that you need to do this yeah. and you need yeah. to do that as opposed yeah. to talking with you and making you feel included one thing i will say about mike and mike before we pivot away is those two were continue to be i'm sure but were two of the best family people that i ever saw you know those guys people would ask me all the time were Mike and Mike best friends and did they hang out a lot? Well, they worked together every day for five and a half hours and four hours on air, but they weren't the best, friend, best of friends. Why? Because they care so much about their family that they went and spent more time with their family than they did. When that show was over, they both, once they got their work done, they both went home and they went to spend time with their wives, to spend time with their, their kids. And, you know, obviously if you listen to Golick and Wingo, you hear Golick Jr. on there too a lot that's a real connection that Mike and Mike Golick and Mike Golick Jr. have. And he has with his other kids too. And his wife, they're both still married. There's not divorces there. There's a reason these guys worked at their, at their families. and But they involved their, their families in the shows too. I remember Golick they Jr. Did. signing yeah. his, his letter of intent to play at Notre Dame on Mike and Mike. I, I remember uh, they both took off when, when Golick's son Jake got married, Greeny and his family went to the Midwest to that wedding. You know, they, they did, they did, yeah, but they, they, they also made sure yeah. they made sure that as, as guy, as people who are on air, you know, your work can become your worship. That's and right. If you're not careful, that becomes your identity. And certainly for those guys, uh, they'll always be known as Mike and Mike, or they'll always be known as Greeny and Golick. But you know, when you talk to their identity and their worth is really found in their families before. I hope you enjoyed part one of my conversation with Jason Romano. What a great conversation it was. Jason's time at ESPN really shaped what he was about to do in his future endeavors in becoming the host of the Sports Spectrum podcast and also producing that podcast. And again, I wanted to really highlight his time on Mike and Mike because that's where he ended his time at ESPN on one of the most iconic shows, not only in ESPN history, but in radio history as well. And remember, Remember, Mike and Mike were both inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame, so you can know that their show was incredibly iconic and incredibly important in the lives of millions of people every morning for 17 years. Come back for part two of my conversation with Jason Romano, where we talk about where God transitioned him in his time going to Sports Spectrum Podcast. You will not want to miss that conversation. It is fantastic. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Meads. And the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word.
And until next time, remember, everyone, everywhere, at any time, and any place, can be an intentional.